We're pulling out the heavy hitters for this exclusive episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Co-authored by Jeff Yang, Philip Wong, and Phil Yu, comes the New York Times best-selling book, Rice, a pop history of Asia America from the 90s to now. Jeff and Phil join us in conversation to talk about their groundbreaking book that covers significant moments in Asian American history that are the cornerstone of the foundation of America and announces to the world that Asia is rising. Let's get this month-long celebration started as we celebrate AAPI Heritage Month in this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We're your hosts. This is still Denny. And I am still Veronica. And today is a monumental day for us on the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Um, This is our anniversary month that we're currently recording this episode in. And we wanted to celebrate this, this month very special with a very special book. Um, written by very special people. Um, but when you are hearing this episode, it will be during the month of May because we wanted to save it for AAPI. Yes. Um, but it, you know, it rolls over. Um, and our book of the month, our nonfiction pick is none other than Rise, a pop history of Asian America from the 90s to now. And it has been written by none other than Jeff Yang, Phil Yu, and Philip Wang. We are joined by two of the authors uh, this evening to talk about this beautiful book. We are so excited to have them here. See, this Uh, is me. (laughs) (laughs) We we want to welcome both uh, uh, Jeff Yang and Phil Yu to the show. How are you all doing this evening? we're kicking it we love it we're here we're glad to be talking to you (laughs) yeah so nice to be here so nice to hang out with you all thank you we've been uh waiting for this moment forever and we are so glad to talk to you i know um we brought you here under the guise of talking about your book but what we really wanted to know was do you all still have access to your live journal and was <laughs> money for the book just start up money so you all can um bring back asian avenue <laughs> <laughs> wow that's like that that blows me right back into the the uh, early 2000s <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know the funny thing is this yeah like i i still in my head every time i, I log onto my computer hear a screeching noise in my <laughs> in my ears you know uh this is my my era of the early internet uh is is still the one of of like AOL and dial-up and, you know, people with, uh, I, I'm actually a little older than the people who kind of grew up in that ASEAN era with like, you know, Foxy Lil Asian guy, <laughs> XXX235888. Uh, uppercase, lowercase. Uppercase, lowercase. <laughs> um, 
but but you know asian avenue live journal and so on and so forth that was when kind of uh the the very earliest incubation was taking place of, of asian americans uh, on the internet and that actually i feel is is kind of the era in which phil Yu first donned his cape and mask as angry <laughs> So that's that's the the early beginnings of it. I mean, that, that's such an interesting era because it's like the, the early internet, like it it felt a lot more um, innocent in a lot of ways. Like you could make friends with people online. I mean, I still do, but like in a way that was like felt much more open, and there are a lot more possibilities. And being like open with people on the internet felt more like. Um, like something special and not like a liability, you know, like you could, like you could make friends and it was, you know, and like you were opening yourself up and there was something amazing about that, especially for Asian Americans who like, you know, you could feel connection with others. Um, especially if you're more like geographically isolated from other people. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, you could, you could argue that because we were so separated physically in a lot of ways, we created culture on the internet, right? Like a lot of the reason why uh, some of the, the first manifestations of Asian America as a pan-ethnic, you know, kind of pop culture, not, not you know, politics, not just sort of our, our first Indian arts culture, but that sort of pop culturing of Asian America took place online is because like we we trafficked in memes, you know, we, we uh, created viral videos. That was sort of the beginning of that. And uh, our third co-author, Philip Wong, you know, was one of the early pioneers of, of YouTube, uh, sort of inventing that medium, not just for Asian Americans, but for kind of everybody, for like millions of people who are watching those videos. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, when reading your book, and I, when I got to that particular part, I had to call her up, and I'm just asking her, like, do you still happen to have access to your live journal? And she's like, you know what? I do. And I was on it the other day and I called up a friend of mine and asked him, you know, like, hey, do you remember this? And started sending him pictures of his fraternity brothers and all of that. And, you know, she was like, it was very emo of us. And I was like, that's what they talk about in the book. And she just said how important that connection was for her as a as a Vietnamese woman going to school and college and being mm. able to connect with her friends in that way. And like you said, the the internet during that time was like a it was a very genuine space, right? Yeah, very organic to me almost because I immigrated here when I was a full blown adult. So to be transplanted from being surrounded by Asians in the Philippines, I didn't even categorize myself as like Asian. I was just Filipino. And then mm -hmm. when you come here, it's like oh you're othered, and then oh you're Asian American. And then, oh, you're supposed to be acting and behaving like these other people. But then my my when I first realized I'm oh, I'm not alone in this, it's actually through YouTube. And I was watching all those people, like like Kev Jumba and everybody, Wong Fu Productions. And I was like, I am not alone. Like, you know, it's just a me and like my sisters that are over here. Mm. It's like it was like groundbreaking to me. You know, that's that's so amazing. And by the way, I actually literally just clicked over to Live Journal to see if they still do exist. <laughs> and they, they do, but it's like in half it's in Russian. <laughs> it's just really wild. Um that, that early internet has has like you know, almost the equivalent of like Greek ruins and stuff like that, you know, the, the detritus of the early geocities and 
it's whatever it's still out there somewhere uh but you know it, it doesn't quite look like what we we uh remember it to be but you know what you're talking about that whole notion of, of like finding one another and seeing one another i i think that's actually a lot of what the book is about for us it's about being seen uh, about moving from this period in which we were excluded uh, in many cases by law from this country to a a time when we were here but invisible to now when we really are finally getting a chance to step into the spotlight and and speak up and so many of the stories we heard from the people we interviewed were about this just ingrained feeling that you didn't have a right to take up space mm-hmm. you didn't have you didn't see yourself in, in the reflection in the mirror like you're a vampire you know you even actors and so forth were like oh, you know, as soon as I got a script, I would turn to page 50 because I assume my character wouldn't come in before that, right? And that sense of just complete, I don't know, like like built-in, uh, you know, self-esteem breakdown and, and lack of, of uh, even a context for being yourself as a human being is something which I think Asian Americans have had to overcome over the course of these last three decades. One of the books that we uh, started our year out of last year was Charles Yu's uh, Interior Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And if I were to give this to give rise to somebody, I would couple it with that minor feelings, gold diggers, a lot of different books that really encompass what it is to be an Asian American here in, in, in the States. And with all of what you were just speaking about of like, you know, trying to find yourself and trying to find your voice, as opposed to what someone says that you should, that you should be right with the white gaze being at the center as Mm -hmm. they try to put all the time yeah that's why I feel like this book should almost be like taught in school and higher education because there's so much research done like for it and then like it's like fact it's I feel like almost like one of the first books that we've read that actually accounts what happened to like Asian Americans from the beginning up to now even though it's like pop pop culture but what is America America's like pop culture (laughs) yeah I mean, you know, we when we talk about pop, we like to say it's not just about pop culture, but it's about what's, you know, the population is doing, right? This is the popular history of Asian America, uh, which means it's about people. And we have a lot in there, which isn't just about like entertainment and movies and media uh, and politics and tech and all that stuff. It's It's about just like living, right? We have, you know, snapshots of what it's like to be Asian American in there. And I think that's kind of in some ways... Uh, you know, Phil talks about wanting people to be able to just open it up anywhere uh, and, and feel at home. And, and that's part of what we wanted to bring to it. I think a, a big part of it also is, in, in a way, like the book covers so much time and is making up for lost time, like making up for lost stories that we that were not told, you know, that um, we that we maybe counted ourselves out, you know, talking about what you're saying, like trying to look at page 50 to see where we come in, like we counted ourselves out and we're like, you know, maybe we thought maybe we were made to feel like our stories don't matter or, or maybe we're not, or, or we're supposed to take a back seat to telling other people's stories. And I, I just feel like the book is trying to validate and make up for lost times. Like, no, no, no. This stuff that makes up everything, our community, the stories, our community, the live, just the lives of us, like that's all worthwhile. Like that's all stuff worth talking about or reading about um 
you know, people, you know, you say, you say like, thank you for saying like, it should be taught in schools. Like I, you know, the, 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 the best compliment that we've gotten, the best observation that people have been telling us since the book got released was, is that this is the book I wish I had when I was growing up. Like I would, like it would have changed my life. You know, people are saying stuff like that. And I'm like, I, you know, that's why I wrote it. Like, that's why we wrote, we wanted the, we wanted these experiences to be, you know, canonized in some way so that people we could have, we could just, you'd hold it. You can put it in one place, you know? Um, and then, but the other thing about the book is that we, co- we do cover a lot of stuff, but we don't, I, mean, I tell you, there's so much we left on the floor that we just could not fit in the physical limitations of the book. You know what I mean? We have these interviews that lasted like, you know, a very long time, pages and pages that we had to cut down to like, you know, to fit in. And so a lot of it is, it covers a lot of stuff, but a lot of it is just scratching the surface of so many different moments, ideas, and subjects. And so, you know, I think we tell a lot of people, like, I hope that this inspires folks to, you know, if you, if there's something and you come across something and they're like, I don't know that. And then like, it really piques someone's interest. Maybe they'll go off and do their own research and, and tell their uh, more stories or go off and like, you know, this, this is, I feel like this is a starting point. If anything, it's not, it's not like supposed to be definitive and end all here. It's, mm-hmm. it's where we go from here, you know? But you know, you, as you said, you had to leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, but you know what that means is like, you can release like special editions and right. get that extra money, <laughs> you know, like, like do a poster, <laughs> do all the merch of like all the stuff that wasn't included in the first book of like, here you go. Here's the exclusive material criterion level type. <laughs> special edition of director's yeah, yeah. cut. Yeah. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I, I want that jacket. Oh though. man. <laughs> I've been hearing you've been printing out you're holding up this beautiful rise jacket and you've been printing out a lot of different things for merch i hope that all of comes to fruition so that we can go and spend our money on all this stuff let's just say right now it's in an experimental phase and let's let's uh <laughs> i'm like it's a conversation I'm like, yeah. yeah it's a conversation <laughs> yeah, so i i i understand what you what you uh, were saying about like you know i hope this would be like a starting point of you know more conversations from people because like when I was reading the book you know it feels nostalgic to see the stuff that I know but like for example Bangras I have no clue I had no idea and I went to a rabbit hole and it was amazing and I'm mm. like where at where have I been like how like I, I felt like you know I'm not a real Asian because I didn't know about this and I'm not afraid to tell people that I don't know about this but here we are I know the boots now. No, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the show it if you guys say it. Uh, but yeah, I, I think stuff like Bangra, you know, I think stuff like Bollywood, I think stuff like, you know, the conversations that uh, people shared with us around the things that for them really kind of made their Asian American experiences. It was so critical, you know, for us, even just imagining the book to try to be as inclusive as possible of as wide array as a uh, set of, ideas about what Asian American meant as possible. Um, we, you know, we certainly do our best as editors and as authors, but we are also three East Asian guys, you know, of a certain age, uh, spanning that 30 years. Uh, two of us are named Phil. It's like, <laughs> you know, there's a, a limit to our diversity. And so we, we early on 
actively reached out to all the cool people we knew from as as wide an array of, of different uh, pockets of, of our world as possible to try to tell stories that weren't necessarily the ones that we personally experienced. Uh, and, and we know we, again, that was just like scratching the, the top of the iceberg. Uh, so, you know, we, we certainly hope this is as much as anything else, a jumping off point for people to go either tell their own stories or as you did research them elsewhere for sure. So I want to start with your, your essay. All of your essays were amazing, but, um, uh, Jeff, I want to talk to you about yours in, in your opener. Um, I had a college professor my freshman year who was the most profound voice in um, all things Black history in the entire state of Florida. His name is Dr. Eton. And he would start every class by saying Black history is American history mm-hmm. because there's this division that American history does not include any marginalized person, right? And so from the first opening sentence in your before essay, uh, you asked the reader, where do we begin? Or rather, when did we begin? Um, when you have conversations with people with respect to the major and instrumental contribution to the building of this country from the foundation up, what have you found to be the common thread or even the unwanted narrative that's being injected into that conversation? That's a powerful question. And I will tell you that um, we think about America frequently uh, through the lens of the peoples that w- have been welcomed here, right? You know, people use that term all the time. America is a nation of immigrants, right? And, you know, some of us are children of immigrants or immigrants ourselves, you know. But it isn't actually just a nation of immigrants. There were, first of all, people here already <laughs> when other people got here. And then not all immigrants came on purpose. A lot of them were brought here involuntarily. And when we, we talk about the story of America, I think that you know we as Asian Americans have a, a particular story. And that story is deeply embedded in immigration and coming from different shores and different places. But that story doesn't even begin unless we first talk about A, indigenous populations, and B, Black people in America, African-Americans who were enslaved. And when we actually look at the story of, of Asian migration to the United States, beginning with you know, Chinese, Japanese, uh, Koreans, and uh, Indians who were brought to America, uh, in many cases, in agric- agricultural or, or uh, construction you know, spaces like building the railroads and so forth, the reason why America wanted immigration to begin with was because freed slaves you know, were, were costing too much, right? It was like, they, they wanted to replace the free labor they were getting by getting cheap ass imported labor, right? And from the very beginning, you saw that, that setting apart, that, that setting head to head between the new immigrants of America, whether they were Irish people and, and you know, later Italians uh, or, or in Germans and so on and so forth in that early era, or Asians, right, uh, against, you know, Native peoples and against African Americans. And when, when we look at that as the deep history, that, that notion that we were here in America because of an attempt to divide America, right, uh, after a, the big-ass divide that occurred during the Civil War, uh, I, I always want to turn back to the idea that when we tried, when we created Asian America, when Asian America was born, right, it was actually a second beat, a, a beat of resistance 
and an attempt to reunite, uh, attempt to rally together and, and be, show solidarity. And the reason why is because the very term Asian American was invented by a group of, of Asian American you know, activists, Asian American before they were Asian American, right? This is a group of activists of Asian background at colleges in the Bay Area who wanted to march in support of Huey Newton. They were there literally marching through this third world resistance in order to support a, a jailed black activist. And so they created this banner that's an Asian American political alliance to march alongside the Afro-American students, right? And so that first act of, of this pan-Asian idea of Asian America was a political one of solidarity and of resistance, solidarity with African-Americans and resistance against the idea that we could be broken apart. And when I think of those two stories, the stories of Asians coming to America as a way to serve as a wedge in some ways, and Asian-Americans choosing to be Asian-American in order to show solidarity with, with African-Americans, I think those are the two stories that we have to hold in our head and think these are the things that pull us back and forth in our history, even across the three decades we cover. Uh, Phil, do you have anything in regards to the question that I had asked about, you know, the unwanted narrative being injected into this conversation about, you know, Asian Americans and their contribution? I think uh, I, the, you know, the quote you said about, you know, African-American history is American history. It reminds me of something I read, and I, I, I don't know where I can attribute this from, but I saw it. it was someone who's like, like the difference between my history and your history is that you're, you know, you know, the history of America, white history is taught and is a requirement, whereas Asian-American history, it's an elective, you know what I mean? And that's, uh, and, and that's how people regard our, our, you know, the stories of our communities. And, um, I think that in the overall, like just my overall kind of the way I would sort of sketch it out in terms of the way Asian Americans have been perceived as, you know, our participation in American history, it's, it's always as, 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 as uh, bystanders or sidelined or as props in a greater, in a greater sort of grander narrative, right? Like when, and, and I, you, you it, and you can see that now in our own view of, in our own like grasp of Asian American history, like it is really shallow and, and kind of deficient, right? When, you, when if you just ask anybody, can you name significant events in Asian American history? Like chances are like most people are not going to come up with much. Maybe they'll talk about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during world war two and maybe the railroads, you know, or something like that. But, um, and that, and, I'm, I'm, and I would say that includes if you ask Asian Americans, right? We have our our stories and our histories have been have been basically invisibilized, been invisibilized and stolen from us because they've been rendered like unimportant, and um, so we're made to feel like we're bystanders in our own story. <laughs> um, again, and it's kind of why we wrote the book in a lot of ways. So like we said earlier, AAPI is coming up next month. And, you know, we always strive for inclusion and equality in this podcast, but I was greatly affected by the essay that Jess Vu and Jeff did among the other stuff that was there because um, Conrad, really, he said, 
Um, and I quote him, AAPI is just flying around in the atmosphere as an acronym, despite it being coined without discussion by those of us impacted by it. Um, this is the story of when inclusion can turn into erasure, the Pacific Islander story isn't the Asian American story. Um, and I really hope um, it opens up more poignant discussions about giving Pacific Islanders the space to celebrate who they are and not by what the United States wants them to be defined as. Was that a difficult conversation to be had knowing that this is an issue that is mostly overlooked in, in AAPI? Yeah, um, but it was an essential one. It was it was actually the first one we we wanted to put together because we couldn't even come up with a title for the book until we addressed this question, right? You know, it, was this going to be a pop history of Asian Pacific Americans or pop history or a Asian Pacific America or Asian America, right? And what we what we realized early on was that conversation isn't just one that we had to have in order to make the book happen. It's one that every single Asian American organization should be having because we do use that term uh, and, and we, we claim this notion of, of common ground without really thinking through what that means, right? Uh, everything from the symbols, you know, the ideas, when we talk about immigration, when we talk about, you know, other countries, we, for instance, erase the fact that Native Hawaiians aren't immigrants on their land. They were, they were ejected from their land. Their land was stolen from them. Uh, you know, th there's, there's this whole context in which even the, the nature of, of being Asian uh, in Pacific spaces feels like an incursion, right? Because when you look at places like, again, Hawaii or Samoa or, or other places, which are uh, Pacific Islander spaces, the tourists, the settlers, the, the, the colonists of those spaces aren't just white people, it's also Asian people, right? And erasing that from the conversation, uh, we, we can have solidarity while also acknowledging that there is tension, you know, that there is a need for us to address history and, and even the present in which things are, are going unsaid and un, unaddressed. Um, but we can't do it while keeping them unspoken and unaddressed, right? So this, we did a roundtable of Pacific Islanders in order to have that conversation early, you know, to say, let's talk about whether or not we should be including Pacific Islanders and Pacific Islander stories and voices in this, given that there is actually this, this narrative arc that is almost entirely focused on a set of experiences that Asian Americans have had and Pacific Islanders mostly have not. Uh, again, immigration, post-immigration, you know, the, the challenges of, uh, you know, model minority culture or, you know, the, the, you know, the context of uh, certain kinds of shared experiences in America that in many cases just did not feel as if Pacific Islander persons had had the chance to uh, or, or the exposure to in quite the same way. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a frank conversation. I felt like we, we, we all felt like we really needed to have from the outset, you know, because even now, I mean, like in the, even in the last couple of years, the term AAPI has been like all of a sudden like embraced by, by, by sort of widespread America, you know, like at the, even at the corporate level, right? Like, and then the sort of the, the 
the spread of the of the catchphrase stop api hate i had a lot to do with it too that was embraced but i think a lot of people embraced it without really taking stock of what that meant you know what i mean and all of a sudden it was just everywhere and you see even like corporate groups and things like that soon like we support the api community like do you even know what that means you know um and all the all the sort of baggage that comes with you know um because i see it like people who i've never ever like you know seen or like refer to api all of a sudden just like saying it just left and right and i'm like when did that that happen you know it was hard enough to get our own communities to really like embrace that and like and and sort of dissect that or interrogate it and all of a sudden it's just like wholesale embraced across the culture now and then as we hurdle towards as people hear this now in api heritage month people i don't i'm not sure like this is a good time for us to talk about this because i don't think people will if we don't really raise that question you know i'm glad that you said that because it makes me think about my mom and my mom is the is one of the people that I know who has gone through every phase of blackness of being what you know like she was a negro <laughs> and then she was black mm-hmm. and now we're afro american and then african american we have evolved and and it's one of those questions of like but who who said who was in the room like where did people <laughs> come from that the name has changed like and you see a lot of people because people are not monolith no matter what group they adhere to and knowing that you have some who say okay i am this or i am american and that's how i you know see myself but when you say something like that there's this whole multi-layered conversation that has to happen to have an understanding of like how did you get to that point you know is it like an anti-self-hate situation or is this a whole nother way of that you're looking at it and so yeah that that conversation is one that definitely needs to be had on like what who are we and are, do we want to do this together are we going to ride this train together right that's why I, I mean it, it happened with the with the very term asian american i mean as soon as that as soon as that term was introduced it was quickly embraced and kind of like flattened, you know, not as a political term, but just as like a catch-all demographic term. And then everyone just kind of started using it and not really, like really interrogating what it meant, you know? So it happens with, it happens with kind of anytime you kind of, you try to label a community, people just want a shortcut to talk about it, you know, without really thinking about the implications. Mm-hmm. Not because it is an Instagram GIF, you can just use it and put it in your stories and you know what AAP means. <laughs> You know, like it's it's more than that. And I think that's why I really appreciated like early on in the book because I was like, I can get with this because, mm. be, you know, they were not afraid to address things that people don't usually address. It's very easy to to skip over because no, most people don't even think about it. But, you know, since because we we do this sort of stuff, that's always in the back of my head of like representation, who stands up for these people. And when I saw that, I'm like, Yes, they did that. <laughs> so thank you. Because that was even even Asian Americans or Asians in general need to to realize that and we need to reflect on all of that and what that means. And like like you said, the baggage of all of it. So um the next question is for Phil. I want to say congratulations uh to winning the distinguished Peabody Trailblazer Award. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it showed today when you were like 30 minutes early for our conversation, like how important that means. Yeah, punctuality <laughs> is the key, time. yeah, yeah. Um, but 
angry Asian man has been an internet staple and not only in my life, but the countless lives of so many in the Asian community. When you look back on your work of advocacy and celebrating of all things Asian to receiving this prestigious award, what surprises you the most about all of the milestones that you have made? I think the big one is that, look, when I look back and, and like kind of take stock of like, what was the path that led me here? Like the starting point, it, you know, is that I didn't know that I was starting something when I started it. You know what I mean? I, it wasn't a, a whole thing where you're like, all right, here's my sort of, here's my social media plan. Here's my, you know, here's my these these steps to world domination and then aka <laughs> Peabody Award like it wasn't like you know when you just you, I started something out of like out of just you know I guess out of passion right out of just wanting a place to like start writing down and this is so of course like a lot of it has to do with timing right there was no at the time and this is gonna make me seem so old but like there was no social media back then so there were no platforms where you could just like you know rattle off some thoughts and post it out there it was like you had to I had to make it you know and so a lot of it is just like having a voice finding a place to you know project that voice and then just keep at it keeping at it until until we find ourselves here that's a, that's the simple version of it i think um the other part is that like i had no idea that my message would be received and received in the way that it has like just that it would connect with people and that people would um, find value in it. And um, like, even to, even to this day, like, honestly, there, I, it, it still bewilders me actually that it has, that it has made any kind of impact at all. Like, and I know that makes me sound like, like really like, like, you know, like naive or, or, or humble about it, but I, there are truly times where I'm like, I don't, all I did was just, we just speak out, you know, I just, just talk. And then like, it's amazing the kind of um, gratitude and thanks. I, I feel like people express when they're like, thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks for, for doing what you did for saying, I was like, what did I do? Like all, you know? And so it's amazing that it connected with people on that level because um, it's, it started out so, so janky. You know? <laughs> I mean, start you know, janky. Yeah, some of us stay janky, but I, <laughs> I, I, I will say this, right? You know, so I've been doing this podcast with Phil now for what is it, five years now? How long has it been? Five, yeah, just over five years. Dang, five years. Um, I feel like every podcast, you know, everybody we talk to at some point says, you know, the first time I really saw myself or heard myself as an Asian American, the first time I, I thought of myself and said, oh, I could actually stand up for myself or, uh, or, or speak my Asian Americanness in public was after I read something on Angry Asian Man, right? It's just wild because sometimes it does take just somebody even symbolically framing the possible to to inspire other people to do things and you know coming from the 90s right when uh a lot of people were just i don't know like afraid to be asian american like to actually use the term they they felt it was limiting professionally they felt it was something that would put you in a box from which you could never emerge um it was true for journalists for reformers for filmmakers for creatives all sorts of types 
nobody really wanted to be Asian American on purpose or, or visibly Asian American uh, because they they felt it was almost like a handicap, right, in getting ahead. But that's why I think when Phil came along and had this this you know just framing, I'm an angry Asian American, right, and I'm not afraid to actually say that and speak that and and put that out there. It it almost opened up a bunch of you know it's like it, it cracked the dam. It let people say, okay, you know, I can do that too. I'm part of that angry Asian nation. And the fact of all the people that we have been talking to, this is the first time my husband was like, oh, you're talking to that dude? And I, and I was like, oh, look at you, Mr. Wang. You know? I'm like, yes, I'm talking to your cousins. What about it? So I, I, that, that's when I know I'm like, yes, we have reached, you know, the top tier because we're talking to like these people, but you know, Kidding aside, it was it was very like what you said, it broke the dam because it opened up this avenues for people that they don't know that they have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, much deserved and congratulations again. Yes. Where Thank is you. that? Did they send you the award yet? Is it like they, a- they said they would, they haven't yet, but maybe by the time this episode comes out, it'll be, you know, it'll <laughs> be here. But I, I did give them a physical address, so they're supposed to send something. I don't yeah. Have you already figured out where you want to put it i have been to, i've been right back there <laughs> yeah right, maybe right behind me where i sit right now but uh part of me also has just been kind of thinking about just sending it over to my parents house and let them have it mm-hmm. see look nice. at that the, the full circle of being being asian <laughs> sending everything i don't know i'm like why i why, why do i need that tr- i don't know like you know like yeah, I don't need the physical trophy. Like everybody on the internet now knows it. So why, why you know, <laughs> they, they can have the trophy, you know. Shout out to the Peabody people. Um, we're looking for the trophy. So <laughs> y'all know they're listening to vulgar geniuses. So <laughs> now they're they've been put on notice. <laughs> Send that trophy now. They should be. Yeah. So it's hard to highlight things, people, and creations um that have degraded us as a race. But through yellow face and disgrations segments in the book we felt that this was your way of reclaiming the racist caricature and the ugly xenophobic tropes made by those actors in their movies authors and other prominent public figures by putting them under scrutiny Mm -hmm. how rewarding was that feeling to be able to call out people and their abhorrent actions (laughs) to me when i was reading it i was like yes they did it and i'm like this Grasians is back <laughs> we, sh- we should clarify by the way so Disgrations is uh two friends of ours uh, and the, the website that they created the blog they created around maybe a little bit after i guess angry asian man right um yeah. it was called Disgrations, and it's uh jen wang and uh diana Nguyen, and they basically you know while phil was angry and sort of uplifting uh you know, celebrating, you know, cool things that Asian Americans are doing and, and trashing stuff that, uh, you know, was like hum- humiliating, abusing, exploiting or or mocking us. Disgration was playing that inside game <laughs> of saying, you know, there are some Asians who we don't necessarily want to uplift, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so that whole, you know, the disgrace to the race thing, uh, it. And we thought it was like an interesting thing that we needed to include in the book to bring them back because the website hasn't been around for a while. 
to have them talk about the 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 reasons why uh this need to like, kind of speak back a little bit to upbraid our own peoples and say hey not all of us are acting right right you know that that's something which they they did funnier and better than anybody and so we got the band back together and put them back on tour for this um and then there's the yellow face thing, which I will, you know, props up to Nancy Wang Yuan, a uh, good friend of ours, guest of ours frequently on the podcast, who is an academic or now former recovering academic <laughs> um, and uh, who who literally wrote the book on uh, Asian American, you know, and, and people of color depictions on screen. And she wrote 30 odd pages about the horrific history of yellow face in America uh, and why it was so easy for people to choose to cast white people with terrible makeup instead of actually giving talented Asian Americans a chance to breathe. So there you have it, right? I mean, yellow face is such an easy target, right? In terms of like, like anybody can see, look at that and be like, that is wrong. That, like that is just flat out wrong. You can have all kinds of debates on representation or whatever, but that one issue where we're like, it is clear. Look at these photos. <laughs> this is clearly clearly terrible um and you know anyone would be like yeah yeah you got me there (laughs) let let me ask you all this because this is one thing that i was wondering every time you know you all had a section that talked about like the first the first senators or whatever that have you know made their mark as asian americans in the country and um, was there ever a point where you got to a first that you knew, like this first, this first shit is just like really <laughs> bad. Um, shout out to Bobby Jindal that this person should be <laughs> there. Like, or was it a struggle to say, okay, we're going to include this despite you know maybe their politics because they've made this mark? Was there a struggle, or was it just like, no, we just got to put it in there? It was a huge struggle. We, we, and not only that, it's it's one of the things that I, more more people are angry because we included some people who all of us I think collectively despise. Uh, then even the people who are like, oh, you missed including this person or that person or this thing. I mean, those people are out there too. But the people who are like, oh, you didn't include. They kind of are like, oh, we get it. It's already five hundred pages. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know we're gonna miss stuff. Right. But the, it's the people who are like, why did you include this person? Why is Elaine Chow in there? Why is Bobby Jindal in there? Why is, you know, uh, you know, S.I. Hayakawa? Like there are people out there who genuinely have kind of crapped all over Asian America and the rest of the country. And and yet in those in those windows of like the founding quote unquote fathers and mothers of Asian America, which is where a lot of them actually were were represented. Right. Uh we were trying to just articulate the idea of, of people who were the first uh, to break through in certain, you know, political and, and official spaces and uh, as activists and as, as uh, elected officials and as appointed officials. And to the extent that we celebrate the breaking of ground without necessarily celebrating the people who broke it, you know, we, we kind of have to keep on reminding people you look at the founding fathers, like most of them owned slaves. You know, they, there, was, there were some really shitty people who built America. Andrew Jackson sucked ass and was like a genocidal, you know, racist. And I mean, I, there are so many people who, who are in the history books 
and who are on our money in America, you know, and I don't see people like not accepting, you know, Jackson's as legal tender just because he, he's an ass. Uh, but at the same time, we want people to actually critique the book for what it is. We want people to actually say those things because that's part of what keeps the conversation going, right? If you don't have people saying, uh, you know, that they don't feel like the, the history is complete or it's too complete and you should have not brought people in, then you don't have people talking about it. And we want people to talk about stuff more than anything else. I mean, we will be the first to say that, like, this book is not meant to be definitive. It is not, the, like, the last word on this. So if you come across a name or something and you don't, you, you got to do the research. You know what I mean? Like, we've, we've you know, we've done, uh, like, what we can to fit in this book. But there's, like, this is meant for you to be like, I did not know this. Like, I did not know of all these names. Let me do, let me learn some more. And then you're going to find out, like, some of these people are not, you know, not not people we would hold up in high esteem, but they're part of our history for better or for worse and so do the research <laughs> <laughs> yes read, reading a couple pages off of the internet or a book like rice would would help you grow as an individual <laughs> um also thank you for making me realize that i am the only filipino that cannot sing <laughs> or dance. <laughs> you know, every freaking decade there is at least one like from Jaya in 1989 to like Ruby Ibarra. I'm yeah. Like, I mean, I guess. And then, you know, to the <laughs> and I'm like, nothing there either, you know? So we can be performers not only on TV, on the stage, and we infiltrate, we conquer. And this is a book and a testament on how Asians can affect pop culture. What else do you say to people? that claim Asian-American pop culture is not American pop culture. Well, well, uh, I'm glad that we, we found you, Denny, the, the yes. one. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's the two But, you know, I would say that like, look, so the, one of the pieces that we are collectively super impressed by actually is, is a running feature by Richie Menchavez, AKA tractivist who goes through and he does these playlists, Asian American playlists of music. And I mean, he goes to get, he, he does some deep cuts and I, you know, he dropped knowledge all over us on this one because we, um, we asked him like, can you, can, you know, we basically sketched out, can you come up with playlists representing the decades of Asian American musicians, you know, and artists. And I mean, like he understood the assignment because he was like, he came back and I was like, there's stuff I, do, I I never heard of that that sounds awesome, um, and he could write such so with such knowledge about it, and so um, you'll see that like especially in something like music or pop music where it doesn't feel like Asian Americans have made made much penetration, you know, um, or you know widespread sort of recognition. It's like yeah, we've been a part of this. Like Asian Americans have been a part of this for a very long time, and, and dropping like really interesting stuff um forever and maybe you haven't heard of a lot of it but some of you have and so um it's that that feature is one of my favorites because it is so um so well researched but also like it is a retort to anybody who says that like um asian americans have no kind of like um stake or impression on popular culture 
it's huge because I was listening to the playlist and there will be some songs like, yo, I didn't even know they were Asian. Like, because <laughs> I've never saw them perform the song. I think even on his first playlist of the before music and there's this old track and I'm just like blown that this woman that's singing, I'm like all this time, I thought she was black. Like, I didn't <laughs> know, I had no clue. So I, you know, I, I had to give him props for curating that list because it is definitely one that goes to show you like you think you know but you you have no idea how <laughs> we deep, didn't know how deep yeah. it goes yeah. right? if you know you know if you don't know now you also know <laughs> <laughs> the fact that my mom knew the people in the before times and i'm like oh i know that song and i'm like i grew up with a person there like that moved back to the philippines and became a superstar. I didn't know she's she started here. Mm. But, you know, I am that also speaks for me not just, you know, not not looking up all the other stuff. <laughs> but that's a whole <laughs> So there's there is a writer named Heather McGee um who is the author of The Sum of Us, What Racism mm. Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Um she came up with something called the Solidarity Dividend where the benefits we gain when um, people come together across race to accomplish what we simply can't do on our own. Your section, Black and Asian, was a conversation that felt like the best starting point um, to what McGee wanted us to realize, which is taking the necessary steps of discussing how white supremacy has been used to draw lines between marginalized groups of people. Uh, will you all talk to us about how this particular section in the book came about and how you chose the people to talk about this particular mm. subject. I, I think, I mean, so I should mention like how the, the, the subject matters of the entire book kind of came about. Like we, you know, when we first started out, like, okay, what, what's going in this book? And we kind of started like doing our sort of dream scenario spreadsheet. Like we should talk about this. We should talk about this thing that happened. We should talk about this. And um, I think we all agree, like from the very beginning, like we need to have something about uh, Black Asian relations and or solidarity and or tensions. You know, we need to address that because that is part of the popular narrative of Asians in America. I mean, for better or for worse, like that, that's one thing that like, you know, that that media and news has had a lot of screen time and a lot of ink dedicated to. Um, and, and a lot of times like, we haven't had, we ourselves have not had the chance to have some agency in the way that narrative has been crafted. So we, we were from the outset, we were like, we got to have something like that. And now curating who would be in that was, I, I, I'm trying to remember how that happened, but it's in the same way. It was like just throwing names out and be like, who would be good for this? Who do we know? Who, who would we want to get for this? Um, and we have the benefit of having done this work for a long time. Like, we just have like some really interesting people in our network who are like, oh yeah, they would be good for like, just if we could get them on all at the same table or the same Zoom chat, I suppose, um, this would be really interesting. I don't know. I can't, I, uh, do you remember, Jeff, how we brainstormed that one, that in particular? Yeah, the Black and Asian Roundtable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, we, had, we had this understanding, I think amongst ourselves, that that initial narrative that began in, in before where we're talking about 
you know, where Asian America came from, right? You know, how, how it's rooted in a lot of ways in this sort of larger conversation about how anybody came to America and how, how labor has worked in America and how race has worked in America. You know, that, that was the first peg. You know, we then had a piece later on, which was talking about, uh, about Koreatown, right? And, and about uh, the LA riots slash uprising. And, you know, that also had this, uh, inherent conversation about uh, Black and Asian com- communities in uh, conversation and contention, right? And uh, when we got to, you know, I mean, literally when we we're actually writing this book, that set of conversations was really coming to a head. I mean, you know, we, we, we saw on one hand, Black Lives Matter. On the other hand, stop API hate, right? And it, it felt like there was there were these sort of two urgencies you know out there that were running in parallel and and there's lots of solidarity from both sides i might add but still you know we felt there was a need to to bring that conversation together the other thing is that um a big part of asian america is multiracial people right uh we you know we didn't want to do a section that was just explicitly like, oh, look, people who are multiracial. We kind of did that in some ways with undercover Asians, right? <laughs> yeah. which is, is less about being multiracial and more about like, did you actually know that person was Asian? Maybe you didn't, <laughs> uh, which Phil wrote. But the notion of multiracial identities in a, in a broader sense was, was something which we wanted to address, especially within the context of, I think, Black and Asian relations, because people tend to think of multiracial Asians as being Asian and white, right? So uh, we, we wanted to bring together people who are both uh, really reflective on some of the, the uh, ways in which Black culture and Asian culture intersected. Uh, w. Kamau Bell, good friend of ours, good friend of our podcast, was one of the first people we thought of. Um, Jeff Chang, you know, terrific writer, good friend of ours again, uh, and somebody who's written extensively about hip-hop from you know, his perspective as an Asian American and as a huge hip hop fan, right? Um, and then uh, people like Sean Taylor, you know, pop culture scholar, uh, but also somebody who, you know, when in talking to him, I found out that he's actually, I think he had like an eighth uh, Asian himself uh, through his Caribbean roots, right? Um, and, you know, a number of other people like, um, uh, so Michelle, Monica sorry, Maser, Monica Maser, Monica Maser, yeah. and uh, you know uh, people who who represent uh, places of influence in our culture, uh, who draw from their multiracial Black and Asian roots as well. You know, so anyway, we we pulled all those people together in this conversation, and uh, we wanted to really just you know confront and contend with some of the things that a lot of people just, again, find challenging and awkward to talk about, while also saying, look, this is not about just tracing the scars. It's also about trying to, to build a path you know, forward and, and some deeper understanding. And it's not unexpected. I mean, like, you know, some of the ways in which we have overlapped and, and spoken to each other and, and found inspiration and celebration amongst one another uh, we're, we're also a big part of that conversation. So, you know, I'm just glad we were able to put it out there. We, we, uh, we felt it was a necessary thing for us to, to talk through. And we're really glad that the people who joined us were willing to do it. 
I think um, when they were talking about it, those were one of the times when I kind of was like tearing up a little bit. Mm. And I was like, you know, I, it was at the end of the book and I was like, man, these are good people that they, they chose. And speaking of good people, you have three pages worth of like contributors. Mm. How paramount was it getting the right people for writing and illustrating the Asian experience and spaces? And was there anyone that dared to be like, yeah, no, man, we're not, I'm not doing this. <laughs> we can't run for the bus. <laughs> I don't remember anybody <laughs> being like, no, I don't like, no, I don't want to do this. Right. Like, Right? It was mostly just like availability, really. Um, oh, I can't remember anybody like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. no, we, 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 had a, we had a couple of people who, uh, who we couldn't reach. Let's put it that way. Yeah, because yeah, they yeah, were yeah. just too busy uh, in various ways. I mean, we had aspirational people we wanted to include in various ways, both as interviewees and sometimes as contributors who, who we couldn't get. Um, but I actually think that it's the people we could get that was r- really more remarkable. And the wild thing is that Part of the reason is because this like global pandemic was happening. Everyone's at home. <laughs> we, we, we did do a bunch of like, you know, hey, uh, we should reach out to this person. Oh, they're too busy. They're never going to do it. And then I'm like, email. Oh, yeah. You want to you want to call me tomorrow? <laughs> I'm just I'm sitting at home eating too many snacks. <laughs> like, <you> know, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. How long did it take you all to put this book together? Did it start during the start of the pandemic or was this before? Uh, I think it took like about a year is a rough timeline from like conception to like when we have to, when they pried the draft out of our hands, like (laughs) um, about a year and and a good chunk of that was just like conversations, like a lot, a lot of like conversations about, um, yeah, there was just a lot of planning before we, before anything, any words hit the page. Um, and it really was like, yeah, like um, of the bulk of it happened. I mean, all of it happened actually during this global pandemic. And so we were juggling like a lot of, lot of stuff at the time as well. Like not just in our personal lives, but like on a global consciousness level, this, it was a lot to handle actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the first conversations about the book really did occur before the pandemic was really taking root. I mean, it was already happening, I think, in China, but we hadn't felt it in America yet, really, or we weren't aware of it, certainly. But by the time we actually sold the book and then were in earnest starting to write it, that's when we, we were seeing everything start to, to shut, like slam shut. And, uh, and things started to get really tense for Asian Americans, right? Um, so that definitely changed a little bit of our sense of what this book could be or needed to be. Uh, you know, it's not just this celebration, this nostalgic, you know, immersion. It, it's also like a, a hope chest. It's also like, uh, you know, a blueprint in case we had to rebuild everything. So yeah, it was, it was weird writing this book in that period. But Again, in some ways, maybe this book couldn't have happened except in that period. I don't know. Yeah, that was wild to think about that. You said that it could have not probably happened if there was no pandemic. To me, that just kind of like shook my head a little bit because, you know, like at the end, like in your beyond, like when you guys were talking, like, you know, we were like in an uprise, like, you know, Asian August just happened and everything was like, we were going up, 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 and then the pandemic happened. And then it's like another blow to everybody. Mm. And I was just like, you know, but 
you know, for what it is right now, like we are thankful for that this book is, you know, is here. And, you know, you see like people's faces like in front of the book. So you're not mistaken what this is about. Like if you touch this, you know what you're getting. So um, I come to that realization of like, you know, we fight for representation on our platform. This experience of reading your book while listening to the audiobook made me feel very seen. Um, I listened to it because I'm we are both like auditory and like we read. And it was so it was so fun. Just, you know, shout shout out to the three of you. Um, and I, shout out to our narrators who do the audio, the other narrators who do the yeah. audiobook. Uh, honestly, I'm glad you mentioned the audiobook because when we so when we recorded our parts, but also when we knew like production into the audiobook was happening, a lot of it was like, how are they going to do it? Like we were we were we were curious. They didn't have any t- conversation with us on how it was actually going to sound. So we were like, you know, so much so much of the book is like graphic essays and lists and things like that. So we were like, how are they going to? How's it going to come across? And for the most part, what I've heard, and I've listened to about half of it, I'm, and I'm like. Well, this turned out pretty like they did a pretty good job. So shout out to our narrators and also the production team behind the actual audiobook because it's it's impressive. One of the narrators is nominated for um, our Vulgar Genius uh, Podcast Award this year. And it was funny because we when we nominated him, he did uh, he read Gold Diggers. It's Rama Valeri. And and then we were looking at the credits. I'm like, oh, he's on here, too. So- <laughs> I think Rama. I think Rama is um is my voice, or is he my? I think he's my voice actually. Whenever like in the book where it's not me reading our essay, like the other parts, I think Rama has taken my is is my voice. Wait, who's my voice? I haven't heard the audiobook myself yet. So the um, that you only read was just your essay and that and the what the last one too. The 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 front the beginning and the end those two um, bookends like yeah. the intro and then the outro like. And then our our respective essays, yeah. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. I will always tell Diddy <laughs> whenever Jeff Yang's part would come up, I'm like, dude is hype every time. <laughs> I did not know that that was not you. It's so whoever was me was well. You're not talking about me reading my own intro. You're talking about like no, some random. It's um. Oh, who was it? Which one was it? Uh, but uh, it's the one. It's the person who reads um. Stuff Asians like. That's what I was oh, talking right. about. You know, like oh, oh, yeah. that one is funny because it's just a list, right? It's just an illustrated yes. list. And he and the guy's just like, stuff Asians like. That's my Costco. Part of the book. <laughs> He's just oh, like it's like Costco. Yeah. Toblerone, you know. <laughs> ice skating yeah. <laughs> and even and even the one where like you know it's the 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 little graphics like what you can find in an asian home like the little pictures yeah oh and like even like undercover asians and I'm just like, yeah. Whoa. yeah he's definitely taking that like yeah hype approach to, to i love it <laughs> we, like, we're we, out here i'm doing this for the culture let's go <laughs> We want to think of our audiobook as basically the hype man for the book. <laughs> yeah, see, the so we learned something new again. So while we while you all were doing this, um, did the meaning of Asian American evolve for you, like individually and or as a group while writing or after completing the book? I think uh, for me, I would say yes because it, it was definitely a demonstration to me that like. 
everyone, every single member of Asian America is approaching this thing from a different way and lens that make up like that is still forming this amorphous thing called Asian America. And that is no more, and that hasn't been any more um, impressed upon me than when I was, when, when we were working on this book. I mean, like even us three authors, we're approaching it from different lenses, different eras, different like, you know, experiences. Cause of, you know, even if just by our, our respective ages, you know, um, and, and in our conversations of trying to, trying to convince each other, like this is, we should talk about this, not like, or, or like, this is the way we should approach this aspect of asian america um everyone is coming at it from a different thing and that's what makes this messy project of asian america still in flux still in progress you know and the exciting part of it is that we get to define what that means it's still being defined and we get to say what it really like and this the book itself like i said is our reclamation of like other people telling the story about us for so long now this is a chance for us to say like no no let's let's uh tell our own story let's give ourselves permission to tell our own story and then define it however way we want i i would add that uh the story of asian america began as a story of people coming from different places to find opportunity in america but over time it's also become increasingly about people both coming from America and going to Asia, right? To, to find their own opportunity, like our man Bruce Lee, right? Uh, and then finally, uh, about this larger conversation between people who are Asian over here and Asian over there and Asian elsewhere all around the world. And I think for me, if, if I have to actually say what changed most for me about the thinking of what Asian America meant, uh, it, it just really was, it dawned on me that the the idea of us as Asians as being a minority of the United States was something that we grew up with and continue to sort of shape our brains with, but we are a majority of the world. You know, It's like, there are more Asians than any other kind of person really. And we haven't really quite negotiated what that means, but we're in an era now where we're starting to see things like, you know, BTS and K-pop in general, like Squid Game and Parasite. I mean, these are all Korean things actually I'm talking about. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what up with that, man? Um, you know, but we're, we're seeing all these, these things coming from Asia that are becoming mainstream or, or incredibly popular here and elsewhere in the world. And I, I feel like, I mean, like anime and manga and like, you know, martial arts, uh, cinema and, and the actual practice, all these things that we've actually talked about extensively both in the book and in our podcast i mean we really are starting to see a more global idea of what it means to be asian american or, or part of an asian diaspora i think that may be the single biggest challenge we're going to be facing in the next 30 years right to see what that really means well i'm glad you brought up the next 30 because uh my question my last question um to you all is um so you've you've written this beautiful book and which I'm assuming is probably might be the only edition of that we see. But I was curious as to 30 years down the line, 20 years, even now, as you look on the future of Rise, if there were to be a second edition, whose hands would you want to pass this book into? I mean, we all got kids. 
<laughs> what, if our, what if our respective three kids got together and wrote, <laughs> and, you know, and, and their ages are spaced enough apart, kind of like the three of us, actually, that they would experience it in a different way. I mean, experience Asian America in a completely, uh, certainly a different way than we did, but from even from each other, actually, it's, it's kind of interesting thought experiment. I don't, I don't know. We wrote this book for we dedicated this book to the ones who come next. And so it's up to them to like figure out what, like what all this means. What, you know, uh, one thing that's been come up has come up in our conversations about this book is that 30 years from now, we kind of hope that a book like this won't need to exist, honestly. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you won't have to capture this and like canonize all this stuff and, and like raise it up as saying like, yo, this is significant because we knew it already because because by then we were we were already already quite aware of the fact that Asian America is is rising and and is you know and is, has an impact on the culture and we didn't have to make the case for it in a in a published book you know. I think that's true, and I think that there is a um, there is a sense in which the um, the idea of uh, having to put 500 pages between two big thick cardboard pieces as beautiful as it is uh feels a little almost anachronistic even now right like books printed matter oh my god how how 40 years ago <laughs> uh, but you know it does do something right like having something physical like this in your hands does do something i love the audiobook i love as the hype Kindle. as the audiobook is yes as hype as it is uh, <laughs> But, you know, with the physical book, you can pull out and fold out all the stuff. You can actually look at the cover and, and home in on stuff. You, you, can, you can feel the heft of it in your hands. Uh, we may not need a book quite like this. I'm actually hoping that we have a million, you know, books about different subjects that doesn't have to be about every subject, right? And I think we will. But uh, I do think that it, it shouldn't have to take 30 years for us to keep on even just keeping this fossil record going, right? Uh, we've actually, uh, Philip is the one who actually points us out. We don't have to wait 30 years because now we're finally at a point where what we saw over 30 years is happening in like 10 years or five years or two years or one year. And, and maybe we need to do this next year, not 30 years from now. Maybe we need to keep on rolling this thing out. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we love books. We want physical books to stay around forever. Uh, we do know there are other ways in people, which people will actually keep and, and, and score and, and track all this stuff. But as for us, you know, we'll keep on telling the story as we can until we are too old and our kids rest it from our hands. <laughs> uh, but we hope everybody else does too, that it doesn't have to be about us passing the torch on to another, another set of people. When um, th these two books, uh, your book and Black Futures that came out last year, I want to say it was last year. Um, those two books sit on my nightstand and it is the two most precious things because both of these books do exactly the same thing. They, they go through the history of these two cultures of, of African-American, Asian-American and talk about the significance of everything. And it is, I think, one of the most precious items that I own. And I'm so grateful for you all to have written um, to have written this book and I, I can't wait to pass this along to every single friend and you know future friend that I might make to say this is something that you have to have on your on your table 
on you know on your on your bookshelf just have it just have the flex just flex it on people just pull it out and say this is who we are this is what we're about you need to know about all of this and if you guys want to do this every year you know like i'm i'm gonna read it i think this is probably the biggest book i've read from cover to cover like as a as as in my whole existence outside of being a nurse yes outside of like the shit that i have to learn for school in my profession (laughs) you know even that i'm like i probably have not read all my books in school like that but this is like the book that I've read from cover to cover going back and forth I'm like did I understand that right I'm like oh you know going down a rabbit hole and like going back to like the YouTube videos like 13 years ago wow that was an that was an experience so you guys did it (laughs) you guys really did it (laughs) so for our you know last question um what are the top two Asian American pop culture moments for you both, you know, separately of all time? Of all, all time. time. Of all time. Ooh. Wow. Like, and what are, and what's this top mean? Most significant, most impactful, mm. most personally like significant? Like what I guess wow. we could say the most significant for you today. Okay. Okay. Because okay. It's easier. That's yeah. actually easier. You're gonna get off, and then you're gonna be like, "Damn." Well, I, I think I know what one of Jeff's is, but yes. uh, <laughs> um, but if I could start, uh, I will say, um, the uh the rise of Bruce Lee as 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 a as just as an international icon, a the most famous practitioner of martial arts. Um, the the like an ambassador of maybe Asian culture, um, just his impact as a, as a as a performer. I think um, I think we take for granted uh, Bruce Lee's kind of impact on on action cinema, cinema in general. But um, you know that you know everything that has come, sort of all the martial arts cinema that has 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 been on the scene since his arrival, is all kind of like is is lineage from his from his work right um so and then just as like a as a as like a pop culture figure like you know such an impact on me and um so yeah like i i you know i think this is probably an obvious answer for if anybody knows me knows that like firstly as a person as a uh in his body of work is quite significant we we named our podcast after him. yeah yeah <laughs> His namesake, so yeah. It's, they call us Bruce not because it's Springsteen, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a Batman podcast, right? Yeah, they call us <laughs> yeah. um, so I guess we're going back and forth then. All right, uh, or do you want to do another one? Uh, why don't you go? We'll right. do this like <laughs> WTF style. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna name. Um, I'm actually gonna name one now, and then I'm gonna name a paired set for the second one the one i'm actually going to name is a little bit unexpected maybe for even you phil uh to to imagine so there was an advertisement right uh that i actually remember as the very first time i i turned on a tv set or and and saw asians just like being asian like asian american family members in a completely like innocuous setting it, and it was a, it was a little bit as most things of that era were a little racist, 
a little weird, but it, it still somehow felt like being seen in a way that I wasn't seeing myself in, in TV or in pop culture anywhere else. So this was a, a commercial for a, um, a detergent called Calgon. <laughs> and, so the 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 the, the thing uh, went where it's like you know I don't know I guess they were they were in uh, it was like two Asian American couples spoke perfect English they're I guess operating a laundromat or something and and somebody's like oh my god tell me the secret how do you get your clothes so white how do you get these clothes so white and uh, you know the uh, the husband's like oh ancient Chinese secret and then you know from the background it's like uh, the wife's like honey we need more Calgon and then the the person who's at the lawn was like ancient Chinese secret huh <laughs> so, like, I remember the, the, after seeing that like I kept on joking with my sister a few years younger every single time she, anybody did anything it was like ancient Chinese secret <laughs> And then she'd go, ancient Chinese secret. It was, I don't know why that weird little commercial ended up being uh, such a, a touchstone in some ways, but I think part of it is because, and I write about this in, in my intro essay, we didn't at the time feel Asian or or even very Chinese, right? We, we you know, our, our, our parents obviously wanted us to learn Chinese. They sent us to Chinese school and all that stuff. Uh, but most of what we were trying to do, living in the suburbs, in, in you know, we lived in Staten Island in New York City, uh, was to try to suppress as much as possible the idea that we were different from all the people around us because we were like getting roughed up in playgrounds and mocked when we walked down the street and it just sucked, right? Um, but somehow that commercial all, all of a sudden made it feel like, hey, you know, we do have a place. Even if it's a place that's sort of weird and a little jokey and maybe possibly racist, we even then kind of knew it was a little bit, something was weird about it, which is why we did it, you know, so often <laughs> at the time, use that line. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that's my that's my first touchdown. For we should have, did we did that did eight the eight, the Calgon ad did it make it into the book in any way? I don't think it did. I that's feel why like it should have. Like, oh, it absolutely yeah. should have. It's so edition. Yeah. yeah. But, but that was like, it was back in the eighties or something. No, it was 70s, it would have gone in the right? before section. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah, yeah. but it's I I also feel like it is a touch. I agree with you. Um, I would have loved to find the the performers who are in that ad and and talk to them. But anyway, that's so. That's pretty cool. Um, my other moment is um, if I have to look back at my 20 plus years of doing Angry Asian Man and the things that I've covered, the most fun that I've had has to be uh, Linsanity. Has to be mm-hmm. like the fondest memory I've had is, is, is just witnessing that, enjoying that, and just feeling like that feeling it gave me um, when he dropped 38 on the Lakers, like I was like, this, is this real? Like, um, it, it, it felt so like anything was possible. Like that moment is a fairy tale moment where you're like, you can believe anything is possible. So, and it was like this, this Asian American kid who's from the Bay area, like me, like just living out his dream, you know, making dreams come true. And so I don't know, man, that was, it was such a positive memory where like, it felt like it just felt like anything was possible. Like the sky's the limit. So uh, that, I have a, such a fondness for that for that moment. Yeah, you know, plus like every parents, you know, every Asian parents' dreams, like oh, first go to Harvard, then go to the NBA, <laughs> 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 or anybody can do that. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. So so my second beat is the one that I think that uh, that Phil probably guessed, and I'm going to pair it because uh, 
it really is about this wild journey where as a TV critic back in the 1990s uh, for the Village Voice, uh, one of the first and, and one of the only Asian American TV critics in the country, I was asked to review this show called All American Girl, which was the very first, uh, well, not the, the first, sorry. It was, it was the first Asian American sitcom centered on an Asian, centered on an Asian American family for like decades. And it was given the, star treatment margaret show was like oh my you know she's gonna be the next tim allen <laughs> the next roseanne Barr, and i was asked to review it as as critic uh as my first big featured review i didn't want to do it initially because i was like oh my god I, I i don't feel right about it i know margaret i'm i'm friends with her you know and uh i'm just really concerned that it's not going to be good and i you know heard stuff around it whatever and I didn't know how her comedy was going to translate to this medium because she was like raunchy and queer and all this stuff. And then it's like this family sitcom. And I watched it, you know, I, I finally said yes because my editor was like, you got to do it. It's your job, right? So I finally said yes. And I, I watched it and I was like, oh my God, this is everything I thought it was going to be. It's, it's really, it flattens her. You know, it, it, it eliminates all the things that really kind of make her, her stuff, her, her material and her herself as a persona funny. Um, and so I wrote this like really harsh review of it. I, I, I'd been challenged by my editor. It's like, are you going to do your job basically? And I, I think that kind of put a little bit of teeth in me. Right. And uh, I, I, you know, said, this is not the Margaret I know, basically, you know, this feels like a hostage proof of life video. <laughs> you know, I, I use, I think I use that, that actual line. And anyway, the bottom line is that, you know, she saw the, the review and she was like, how could you do this? Don't you know that when you, one of the few Asian American people who have a, a platform to talk about television on a regular basis, when you do this, you're not just speaking for the Village Voice or for yourself. It's the community, right? And if ABC ever decides to cancel the show, or when they decide to cancel the show, they're going to throw this review on the table and they're going to say, even your community does not support it. Why should we support it, right? And she was kind of right. I mean, that's more or less what happened. And for the next couple decades, there was not another Asian American show on TV. And then, of course, my elder son, <laughs> Hudson Yang, you know, <laughs> decides that he wants to be on TV. He literally came home one day. He's like, I want to be on TV. And I was like, good luck, kid. <laughs> That's not happening. You know, you, you don't know how hard it is for Asian American actors and kid actors and Asian American kid actors. Are you kidding me? It doesn't happen. Uh, but I love my son and he has a big personality and he wanted, he wanted this really badly. So I, I took him to an audition and look, I'll just cut things short. He ends up getting cast on this television show called fresh off the boat, which is basically, you know, it has him as Margaret Cho in the middle of this, this family uh, set in Orlando, Florida. Right. Um, and uh, loving hip hop and, 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 you know, being this outsider amongst outsiders, I mean, it was a really funny ass show. And for six years, I watched it being made uh, and making a big ass difference, I think, on the world. I mean, if it wasn't for Fresh Off the Boat, there would have not had been Crazy Rich Asians. If it wasn't for Crazy Rich Asians, we would not have all this. I mean, for real, right? Mm -hmm. So that that probably is the, the big beat for me. The thing that actually, when I look back, uh, it may be in, in a lot of ways, like just having Hudson as a son uh, might be ultimately like the big contribution. <laughs> like, <laughs> <give> back. 
to Asian American culture that I, I tore down with my words back in the 1990s. He is my tribute. It's just, it's like, we offer him up to you, Asian America. That is, that is our um, circle of life moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you brought up your essay because that, that particular part, I think, was the most vulnerable part of your essay. Um, and especially when she later goes in and she writes her perspective how, of how mm -hmm. that whole moment. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing that I'm always reminded about of like, we must critique those things that we love, right? And the difficulty that comes from critiquing something um, that you want to be a certain way and, and, and what those implications could be when you, you know, speak what you feel is your truth in that moment. Um, but I just want to say thank you for being um, vulnerable and, and sharing that uh, with the readers of this book. Thank you all so much for being on our show. We greatly appreciate for spending this extended time with us to talk about uh, Rise. We hope that everybody goes out and get a copy. It has already been on the New York Times bestselling list. Yes. It, it needs to go back. It, it definitely deserves the praise. So, so before... I'm, I'm really being very honest and I'm trying not to be emotional because that's not what I'm trying to do here. Not in front of you all. Um, before I, before this book, I still, even though after like my citizenship, I used to refer to myself, like when people would ask me like, where, you know, like, who are you? Where are you from? You know, the same questions I would always say I'm Filipino, but I think after like digesting this book, I have, I have, I have the confidence to tell people now, like, no, I'm Asian American. Wow. <laughs> it, 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 it was a journey for me. It still is a journey. And, you know, we are not a monolith, but it, it really helped me a lot. Like, I'm not bullshitting you guys. I'm, I'm speaking from truth. So thank you. Thank you very much for doing this, talking to us and, you know, keep hustling, keep doing, cause we're, we're reading, we're watching and, we're just happy that you have you have all of this for us. Well, we had a great That's, time talking. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very meaningful to hear you say that, and so we really appreciate that. And um, I mean, is there a better endorsement of the book? I read this and then I became Asian American. I mean, yes. <laughs> you know, you know, it's like I read the I read my Bible. This is it. <laughs> You know, that works for everybody, guys. Anybody reads it, boom. <laughs> I found Jesus. <laughs> Asian Jesus. We'll, we'll send you yeah. the membership card. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it'll be $250, $250 per, per year. Um, <laughs> the shirt and stuff. Discount if you have your Costco's card. Right, exactly. 10% off. <laughs> Crab legs are in the mail. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank guys. you for having us. This has yeah. been such a blast. Yeah. Best part of my day so far. <laughs> thank you. Have, have a good night. I know you All guys right. are busy and probably doing more podcasts later on today, tomorrow, every day. So <laughs> good night. There's always something. Yeah. <laughs> good night. Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. 
Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.